have introduced the law of liberty in non-moral matters and areas that have nothing to do with salvation. We as Christians have some liberty to choose what we do on the basis of our conscience. The example that's been used by Paul in the passage that we're studying is that of the eating of meat, where the origin of that meat is uncertain. Some have chosen to abstain from eating meat in those situations because of the possibility that the meat may have been offered to idols. And Paul has told us that where the scripture is silent, there is no overarching moral principle to give us guidance in those areas, then we have liberty to act according to our conscience. We have liberty to do what seems to be right to us. Amen? The governing principle, however, for our conscience in those matters is honor, specifically the honor of God. And the question that we should ask ourselves in those kinds of cases where we're, we're choosing, uh, making a decision in a non-moral, non-salvation issue is, can I be involved in this activity or this pursuit and honor God? That's the question. And that's what Paul introduced to us in the text last week. Strikes right to the very heart of the matter. Can I do this? Can I be involved in this? Can I still be a part of this and honor God while I do it? Amen? That, that, that really gives a lot of clarity to the issue. It strikes the heart of the matter. It clarifies things. There are many activities that are acceptable for me to be a part of as a Christian. Amen? But it is possible to do those activities in a way that does not honor God. And all of a sudden, if I do that activity in a way that does not honor God, that activity that was not wrong becomes an obstacle to my salvation. It becomes wrong to me because it hinders my walk with God. I'll use an example that can apply to me. I love to hunt. Amen? Uh, there's few things I enjoy more than hunting and fishing and being involved in the outdoors. Hunting is a non-moral pursuit. It, it, there's not a clear direction in the Word of God that says I can or cannot hunt. There's not a moral principle that can be applied that can say it's right or wrong or good or bad. It's a non-moral pursuit. But some folks have lost out with God over hunting. It's that simple. It could become a detriment to my walk with God if I allowed hunting to become an idol in my life or a God in my life or something that supplanted or took the place of God. If I do it in such a way that I fail to honor God, that's the principle. If I do it in such a way that I fail to honor God, then it becomes a detriment to me. Then it becomes wrong to me whether it's wrong or not. Amen? So the first principle that governs the law of liberty is this principle of honoring God. Everything I do is supposed to honor God. Now that brings us to where we are in Romans chapter 14. Today we'll introduce a companion law to the law of liberty. And this is a law that also helps to govern our activities in, this, in these kinds of situations. The law that I'm talking about is the law of love. And the law of love challenges me to consider my brother or my sister in the Lord when I find myself in situations where the Word of God does not govern my actions. To put my brother or my sister before myself. That's the law of love. Amen. If you stand with me for the reading of the word, Romans chapter 14, I'll begin in verse 13. I will say this. This is our 81st lesson in the book of Romans. And looking ahead, we'll finish Romans chapter 14 next week, and then we'll have two chapters left. And I, I haven't gone through and parsed those chapters out, but we've been moving at a pace of about four lessons per chapter, which means we, we could conceivably be finished uh, by the end of October, sometime November. We have August off. 
won't be doing Romans any during the month of August. So we, we potentially have nine more lessons somewhere in that ballpark. Could be a few more, could be a few less. Depends on how fast I move in Romans 15 and 16. But we're, we're nearing uh, the end of this journey. Amen. Have you been blessed by the study of Romans? Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the word of God. We're asking in the next few moments, Lord, you allow that word to challenge us, to move us, to make us, Lord, into what you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, would you say amen? Amen. You may be seated. We're in this section of Romans that is very practical. That is very down to earth. I'm enjoying uh, the pace. Seems a little faster. The the lessons are a little less deep theologically. The application, though, is more pertinent to where you live in a day to day basis. Amen. And I'm enjoying these chapters that deal with just basic, practical Christianity. Paul starts today in Romans 13, or Romans 14 and 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Verse 13 serves as a transition statement that sums up the first 12 verses of chapter 14 in that one succinct statement. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore. That's the conclusion of the matter. That's verses 1 through 12 summed up in one, one short, to-the-point statement. But it doesn't stop there. The verse introduces another principle that we should be careful not to put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in our brother's way. We may have some Christian liberty in regards to non-moral matters. We may have the right to choose what we feel is right for us in non-moral, non-salvific matters. But that liberty does not give us the freedom to act any way we want to act or to do anything we want to do. Amen. We've already been told that we should consider the fact that we're servants of God and everything that we do, our actions should honor God. That's the first principle that has been laid on us. We've been told that whatever we do, we need to be able to do it to the honor of God. And if you don't honor God, it doesn't matter whether it was moral or not. Amen? It's detrimental to your salvation. Now we're told that we should consider how our actions impact others in the church. We must be careful not to let our words, not to let our attitudes, not to let our actions hinder somebody else's spiritual life. We're to look out for our brother. Whenever Cain and Abel and the question gets asked, of Cain asks of God, am I my brother's keeper? The resounding answer throughout the whole volume of Scripture is yes. You're responsible for your brother. You're responsible for your actions and what they do to your brother or your sister. So we must be careful not to put a stumbling block or not to put an occasion to fall in our brother's way. There are a couple of things to point out here linguistically. First of all, the same word judge is used in both portions, both halves of the verse. On the one hand, Paul is saying don't judge your fellow Christians. But on the other hand, he's saying judge yourself instead. Don't judge each other. Judge yourself. Rather than judging what somebody else is doing, judge what you're doing. That's the prevailing point of this verse. Amen. If you're going to be judgmental, 
Be judgmental about yourself. Be judgmental about your actions. Amen? In warning us about our actions, Paul uses two words that have very similar meanings. Both words refer to an obstacle that can cause someone to stumble and fall. And the stumbling, it's a stumbling block. It can, it's something you'd trip over. Or an occasion to fall. And again, something that causes someone to fall and presumably be hurt. But what has to be clarified here is that the stumbling and the falling are not references to a physical accident. These are references to a spiritual fall. Amen? We're not talking about don't trip your brother in the hall and make him skin his elbow. We're talking about don't trip your brother's faith up and make him lose out with God. That's what we're talking about. Amen. It is very important that we realize the gravity of the subject at hand. Paul is not talking about causing someone to become offended or causing someone to become wounded or their feelings to be hurt. Paul's talking about a real, genuine, spiritual downfall where I cause someone to lose their salvation. I, I'm, I'm just going to be very blunt. This passage we're going to read today is not compatible with a once saved, always saved view of Scripture. Amen. And we're talking about brothers and sisters. And we're saying that our actions can cause them to have the occasion to fall. And that fall is very a very spirit, serious spiritual condition. Amen. We have we play a role in their lives. Our actions impact more than ourselves. We're not autonomous. I said this a few weeks ago. No man is an island. You don't stand by yourself. What you do matters. The words you say, the actions you take, the places you go, the things they do that you do, they reflect more on just more than just on your life. They impact the people around you, and you can cause somebody else to lose out with God. Paul is talking about a real spiritual downfall, and he's placing the responsibility for our actions in our hands. It is our job to make sure that our conduct doesn't cause someone else to stumble in their walk with God. To put it another way, we must make sure that we don't do something out of the abundance of our liberty that causes someone else to fall into sin and to lose out with God. That's the seriousness of what we're talking about. Verse 14 says, I know... And am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In order to establish the point, Paul returns to the example that he's previously used in this chapter, previously used in this discussion, and, and that is the eating of meat. And he says, as far as the eating of meat goes, no meat is inherently unclean. Amen? We said this before. That, that, that this is not something that, that, that the meat itself has within its sin. The statement here is that nothing that falls in the category of non-moral, non-salvific, doesn't involve salvation, none of that has any moral value. It is not in and of itself unclean. Hunting and fishing, the example I used earlier, that's not in and of itself immoral. That, that, I'm not going to go to hell because I hunt and fish. If I go to hell over hunting and fishing, it's going to be because I don't do it in a way that honors God. Amen? And so these are non-moral things, and in and of themselves, they're not inherently unclean. It cannot be clean or unclean because it does not pertain to morality. It doesn't pertain to right and wrong. Amen. There are many activities that fall in that class. There are many activities that do not fall in that class. There are a lot of things that are in and of themselves immoral, that are in and of themselves inherently corrupt. There are activities that if I take part in, it makes me immoral. Amen. So this isn't saying that everything in the world, there's nothing that is corrupt or nothing that is uh, unclean. There are unclean things. But in the context of this discussion, those non-moral, non-salvific issues, they're, they're, they don't have any moral value. They can't be declared to be clean or unclean. 
Amen? Now, Paul is very emphatic that food is morally neutral. Aren't you glad about that? I'm loving that. Amen? And no restriction at all. Food is morally neutral. I'm just going to try to eat it and honor God while I'm eating it. Amen? And so Paul says, I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty strong statement. Jesus Christ himself has established this principle for me. Now, what he, he may be saying that what I'm about to tell you is a direct revelation I got from God. The Lord has himself revealed to me that food ha- is Im- that it's morally neutral, that it doesn't have any moral value. Uh, if you'll remember, Peter learned that concept straight from God. Peter learned that concept in a vision that came from God whenever God brought before him all of these animals, these meats that were ceremonially unclean meats, and the Lord commanded him to eat. And you remember Peter said, no, Lord, I can't do that. That meat is inherently sinful. It's inherently wrong. And the Lord said, no, eat. What I declare to be clean is clean. Amen? And so... Paul learned that, or Peter learned that principle straight from God. So perhaps this is a principle that God revealed to Paul the same way he revealed it to Peter, and now Paul is sharing it. Or, or, or perhaps, perhaps Paul's making a reference to the direct teachings of Jesus Christ. We understand that the words that are in your scripture, in your Bible, that are written in red, the words that Jesus said, those were recorded for posterity, so we'd know what Jesus said. But we also understand that before there was a written New Testament, before there were written epistles of Jesus Christ, those words that Jesus spoke were memorized and studied and passed around among the the apostles and the believers in the first century church. They knew what Jesus said. And Jesus spoke on this very topic. This very subject was important to him. Amen. The words of Jesus regarding food are recorded in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. And in that passage, Jesus declares that what proceeds from the heart can defile a man. But what enters a man through his mouth cannot defile him. He says food can't defile you. And so Jesus taught that principle himself. And so we don't know exactly what Paul means when he says, I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus. Maybe he's saying me and Jesus had a talk and Jesus told me this. Or maybe he's saying, I I remember what I've been told about what Jesus said. And his words, his own words can be used to, to, to back up what I'm saying. Either way, Paul invokes the name of Jesus in declaring this principle. That some things, those things that are non-moral, they don't have any inherent uncleanness in them. They become unclean to us by the way we do them. Amen? The latter half of the verse presents us with a caveat that defines the rest of this discussion. No food is morally unclean, but to him that esteemeth anything To be unclean, to him, it is unclean. Now we return back to the principle of conscience. If you'll remember, in the first lesson this chapter, we talked about the contention that had developed between those who were strong in the faith. They ate anything. The fat people are strong in the faith. Amen. And then those who were weak in the faith, they wouldn't eat meat because they're afraid it could have been offered to idols. Vegetarians are weak in the faith. We get this straight. Strong in the faith, weak in the faith. Amen. We said then, when we were discussing that, that Paul's solution was not to admonish the weak in faith to forsake their convictions. It seemed reasonable that if the strong in the faith recognize they have a liberty, amen, that the weak in the faith don't recognize that they have, that the, the solution would be to tell the weak in the faith, quit, quit being weak and get strong in your faith and live the same way as a strong in the faith. But that's not what Paul tells us. That's not the direction Paul goes. We said back then that Paul's solution was not going to be to admonish them to forsake their conviction, but rather to admonish the strong in faith to respect 
the conviction of those that were weak in the faith. The principle that's presented here at the end of this verse establishes the reason for that. Paul says that physical things such as food may be morally neutral, but they can become unclean to us because of what they represent to our conscience. If a person has a conviction against eating meat because of the various concerns that we talked about, the the fear that the meat may have been offered to idols, then to violate their conviction is in and of itself morally wrong. If a man believes that meat is unclean, and I convince him to eat meat, I have caused him to violate his conviction. And that in and of itself makes the meat unclean. What Paul is saying here, just so you don't miss what's going on here, what Paul is saying here is that it is a risky thing to endeavor to to learn to ignore your conscience. It's a risky thing to decide that you know better than your conscience knows. It's a risky thing to to get in the habit of pushing beyond or past your conscience. So what Paul is saying is, I would rather that you honor your conscience than that you learn to ignore it. Because if you learn to ignore it, it's going to cost you your soul. Amen? And so if your conscience says it's wrong, Paul said then it's wrong. Period. End of sentence. It doesn't matter what the strong in faith said. It doesn't matter what what the right and wrong of it is in a moral uh, atmosphere. What matters is what your conscience said. And if your conscience said it's wrong, you better obey your conscience. Amen? Everybody get the principle? It's a bad thing to get in the habit of ignoring your conscience. It's, it's a dangerous place to live when you learn to overlook what you know is right. What you just inherently feel in your heart you should not be doing. And you do it anyway. You put yourself in a place where it will eventually cost you your soul. That's the truth of the matter. Verse 15 says... But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. So now we begin to define the law of love. Food in and of itself is not intrinsically sinful. It doesn't have any sin in it. But if my brother is grieved by it, If he has a conscientious objection to it, then I should not partake of it in his presence. Amen? If a fellow believer has a conviction regarding the eating of pork, and I am so thankful I do not have a conviction against eating pork. I love baby back ribs. Amen? But if I have a brother who has a conviction against eating pork, the principle here is not that I should just tell him to to grin and bear it, but that I shouldn't eat pork in front of him. I shouldn't even tempt him to violate his conscience. If I do, I become guilty of encouraging him to do something that his conscience tells him is wrong to do. Amen? Remember the principle of the preceding verse. The activity may not be morally wrong, but defying my conscience is morally wrong. It's a dangerous place to live when I learn to defy my conscience. So if I cause him to eat pork, the the principle here is if, if, if Randy doesn't believe in eating pork, and I do, I shouldn't even invite him to my house when I've got it on the smoker. Because I'm going to tell you right now, that smell will just grab you by the nostrils and you won't even have any choice anymore. It, it, it overwhelms your senses, and you'll end up eating pork. And if I bring him over to my house for some other reason, and I've got that, that pork on the smoker, and the whole house smells like that hickory wood and that, oh, my goodness, that sweet-smelling barbecue sauce and pork, and it gets a hold of him, and I cause him to eat that pork. If I cause him to, to, to take a bite of that which he knows in his heart he believes is wrong, then I may cause him to feel condemned 
And I may ultimately cause him to lose out with God over that feeling of condemnation over something that wasn't morally wrong. This is the principle that's in play here. My actions could cost him his soul over something that wasn't morally wrong in the first place. That's a dangerous place to be. We're talking about this is a very serious matter. We've moved beyond just the discussion of Christian liberty. You know, that discussion always starts with good. I can do whatever I want to do. But then you start to see, whoa, wait a minute. There's a lot of gravity to what I do. First of all, I have to honor God. Second of all, I've got to worry about my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. We're talking about heaven and hell here. We're talking about the salvation of a soul or the loss of a soul forever. We're talking about the eternal destination of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And what we must recognize is that our actions can have a detrimental impact on the salvation of somebody else. That's a dangerous place to be. When I sit in judgment over my brother or my sister, I try to tell them they're doing wrong, right, or whatever, and I direct them, and I don't allow the Holy Ghost to lead them, but I try to become their conscience and override and overwhelm their conscience. I put myself in the place of possibly leading them right out of the doors of the church and right into the gates of hell. That's a dangerous place to be. The law of love. What Paul says, if we insist on exercising our Christian liberty to the point that we injure our brother, then we're not walking in charity. If thy brother be grieved, that word grieved has more than to do with, less to do with grief and more to do with injury. And if thy brother be grieved or be injured by your actions, by your meat, then you walk not in charity. You're not living according to the law of of love and the law of love declares. Listen, if you if you were taking notes, if I was teaching purpose history, I'd tell you you need to write this one down. This is what the definition of the law of love. The law of love declares, I love my brother or my sister in the Lord more than I love my own liberty. That's the law of love. I love my brother or my sister in the Lord more then I love my own liberty. Then I love my right to do what I think is right. We, we shouldn't allow such a minor thing as eating meat to become the thing that ruins the spiritual life of a brother or sister in the Lord. We, we should not insist on our Christian liberty to the point that it becomes a detriment to our weaker brothers or sisters. The law of love declares that we should be willing to compromise on non-essentials for the sake of our brother or our sister in the Lord. It tells us that our ego and our pride matters less than their soul. That's serious business. That's right down where the rubber meets the road. And I want you to be very clear on this. It's the strong in faith that are called to compromise, not the weak. He doesn't call the weak in faith to become stronger. He calls the strong in faith to not exercise their liberty out of respect for the conscious, the conscientious objection of those that are weak in the faith. The burden lies on the strong. The burden lies on us. Our actions, what we do matters. It can have an eternal impact on somebody else's soul. Now the language that Paul uses here is extremely strong. I said earlier, this is not in any way compatible with a once saved, always saved type of theology. He, he, Paul doesn't, he speaks of injury with the word greed, but he doesn't stop with injury. He moves on to the word destruction. He uses that word destroy, which is a very strong word. That word means to ruin, to destroy, to kill, to put to death, or to cause to die, or cause to perish. What he's talking about here is more than just an injury. It's more than just a harm, a hurt, a wound. He's talking about spiritual death, spiritual destruction. Paul says these are people that if, if I, my actions could cause them to be lost forever, my actions could cause them to be destroyed. And these are brothers and sisters of the Lord. These are folks who have been saved. 
but I can cause them to stumble in their faith and even destroy them. Listen to what he says. He says, don't destroy with meat that which Jesus Christ died for. Don't destroy with your liberty, with your self-righteous, sanctimonious sense that you can act however you want to act and nobody has any authority over you. Don't destroy with that attitude what Jesus Christ gave his life for, what he bled and died for. Paul said we need to recognize what's at stake here. Jesus Christ died so that they could be saved. Would you destroy their faith with something so trivial? Would you cost them their soul with something that really doesn't matter? It's a pretty harsh statement. Paul is saying that if you recognize the gravity of the situation, if you realized that a soul is hanging in the balance, that this person that Jesus died for could be eternally lost because of your actions, would you still insist on exercising your petty liberty, on doing the thing that you feel you're so justified in doing? Don't destroy him with your meat. That's a pretty strong statement. Jesus Christ died for him or for her. Don't put yourself in the place of being the one that separates them from the great love of God. God has gone to such extents to bring them in. Don't be the one that pushes them out. Verse 16 says, Let not then your good be evil spoken of. Paul says, don't let the good things you do, you're, you're, you're strong in your faith. What you're doing is good. There's nothing immoral about it. But don't let it, that word evil spoken of has to do with blasphemy. Don't let it cause people to blaspheme God. Believe it or not, we, we should be concerned about what others think about what we do. If the, if the exercise of our Christian liberty causes strife and division in the church, if it causes trouble in the church then our good is evil spoken of. Our good causes trouble and confrontation and division and strife in the church. And, 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 and furthermore, if, if my actions cause strife and division in the church, what will those who are not a part of the church have to say about me and about the church? We've got to learn to be sensitive about how the kingdom of God is perceived by others through our actions. We've got to learn to be sensitive about how the things of God are perceived by others through the things we do and the things we say. If we're giving outsiders a bad impression of the church, then we're doing harm to the very cause of the kingdom of God. Even if we're not doing wrong, if our good is causing strife and division and contention in the church, then we're undermining the very mission of the church. When the body of Christ is divided over trivial, non-moral issues, we become a stumbling block, not just for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but for those who are not yet a part of the church. Who wants to come be a part of church that's, that's all eaten up with backbiting and gossip and, and division and strife and contention? Who wants to be a part of that? Our own actions... Our own activities become a stumbling block to those that are trying to find the love of Jesus Christ. He died for them. He established this church so they could find grace in an altar. God forbid that the church become the thing that keeps them from getting there. When that happens, our actions become detrimental to our own mission. This is the only reason we exist. We don't come together on Sunday just because we like to hear good music, sing a few songs, shake a few hands. I love to see all you folks, but you're not the reason why I come to church on Sunday. We're here so that, first of all, we're here so you can be saved, so you can make heaven home, because you need church. You need what you, you can't get what you get here anywhere else in this world. 
You can't get what you get here. You need to have a prayer life, but you can't get what you get here at home in your prayer closet. You need to read the Bible for yourself, but you're not going to get what you get here in your personal time of Bible reading. You need the church. You need a man of God speaking into your life. You need the unction of the Spirit of God working in cooperation with the body of Christ working in your life. You need the church. That's why we're here. But a lost world needs a church too. A lost world needs a place of salvation and grace and mercy. God forbid that we become so divided amongst ourselves that a lost soul can't find their way to the altar because they're turned off and pushed away by the attitude of the church. Verse 17 said, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is not the foolish stuff that we focus on. Sometimes we get so tied up in all the trivial things that we miss the big issue. Church is not about the petty little things that divide us. The kingdom of God is not defined by our liberty and non-moral issues. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness pertains to right living. It pertains to living uprightly and justly and being morally good and doing morally right. And that's part of the kingdom of God. It, it pertains to, to, to righteousness, to right living, uh, to acting right and doing right. And it pertains to peace, uh, which is a reference to inner peace. Uh, the peace that God gives us uh, is not a peace that is subject uh, to the circumstances of the world around us. Uh, the peace that God gives us uh, is a peace that comes from God alone uh, and we can have peace in our heart no matter what's going on around us we can have peace in our heart in the middle of terrible crisis and chaos and turmoil because peace is a characteristic of the kingdom of God and we're a part of that kingdom I belong to him he belongs to me that's where my peace comes from and the kingdom of God is about joy Amen. A joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen. It's, it's, it's joy in God that is, I find the real happiness in life. My, my joy doesn't come from material possessions. My, my joy doesn't come from the good things in my life. My joy doesn't come from a good job and a good paycheck and a, a nice vehicle and a nice home. My joy comes from Him. I can lose all of that other stuff in a moment but I'm never going to lose him because I am his and he is mine. I belong to him and he belongs to me. David said it best. He said, my delight, my joy is in the Lord. He is the source of everything that's good in my life. That's what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. That's, 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 what it, that's what the lost world should see in the church, not division and strife and contention. The world should see righteousness and peace and joy. When they look at your life, they ought to see righteousness and peace and joy. When they look at this church, they ought to see righteousness and peace and joy. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And all of those things are the result of salvation. Not the, not, not the other stuff in my life. Those things are a result of knowing God. Coming to God and being filled with the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost. It says that righteousness, peace, and joy, they come from the Holy Ghost. They come from being filled with the Spirit of God. There's a concept here, the kingdom of God, that is so deep. We, if we waded into it, it would be another 81 lessons all by itself. It's a concept that Jesus preaches all through the Gospels. This idea that he came to establish a kingdom, a dominion, more than just a social group, more than just a club or a church, but a kingdom where his authority and his rule reigns supreme.
a kingdom that is based in righteousness and peace and joy. And the only way to enter that kingdom is to be filled with the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost. To be filled with His Spirit. That's how you come into that kingdom. you got to be born again. Amen? Paul told Nicodemus, no man shall see the kingdom of God except to be born of water and of spirit. John chapter 3. you got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in his name. He'll fill you with his spirit. That's the promise. That's the new birth. That's how you get into the kingdom. That's how you get into that place where righteousness and peace and joy flows. The benefits of the kingdom of God is the Holy Ghost working in our lives. The Holy Ghost is what brings righteousness. Not my, not my, my moral ability to do right. If I'm dependent on my moral ability to do right, I'm going to fall every time. Amen? Amen? It's a Holy Ghost. It's the Spirit of God within me. That's Romans chapter 8, and I'd be going backwards if I went back and taught that again. But it's the Spirit of God working in me that causes me to live holy and righteous. It's the Spirit of God working in me that gives me peace. That's why my peace isn't dependent on the situation. That's why if the world, if, if this city breaks out in rioting tonight like it's happening all over the country, I still have peace. Why? My peace doesn't come from civil peace. My peace comes from the Holy Ghost and it's inside of me. Can't take that away from me. Amen. And that's the source of my joy. My joy comes from the Holy Ghost that's inside of me. The whole kingdom is characterized by the power of the Holy Ghost working in us. True Christianity springs forth from an internal relationship with God. you got to have it on the inside. you got to have it in your heart. you got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. It's real easy to focus on the outside. It's real easy to try to get rules and guidelines and instructions and all that stuff and, and try to conform. We can do that in our flesh. We can't live holy in our flesh. Holiness comes from a heart filled with the Holy Ghost. Righteousness comes from the power of God working in me. Joy comes from the Holy Ghost inside of me. Peace comes from the Holy Ghost inside of me. Our mission as a church is to invite others who have not been filled with the Holy Ghost to become a part of the church. Our lives then are supposed to advertise the reality of what it means to be spirit-filled. When we allow the church to become defined by non-moral issues that defied us, we undermine the whole reason for our being. We cause others to speak of our good in an evil manner. And we hinder them in their pursuit of true righteousness, peace, and joy. That only comes from the Holy Ghost. And it ought to be what the world sees in us. Amen. Verse 18 says, For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. The way to serve God is not in food and drink. It's not in the non-moral issues. The way we serve God is by bearing spiritual fruit, by living lives that reflect the reality of being filled with the Holy Ghost, lives that reflect the righteousness and peace and joy that flows from the presence of God in our lives. And he said, if a man serves Christ in those things, then our lives are acceptable to God. And will be approved of by men. It matters what others think about us. It would have been enough just to say it's acceptable to God. But he said it would be acceptable to God and approved of men. It matters what others think. Because we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We are the the billboards, the advertising bulletins for righteousness and peace and joy. The only glimpse that some people will ever get into the kingdom of God is what they see in our lives. 
The only chance they'll ever have to, to get a glimpse into the blessing of the kingdom of God is what they see in us. And so the law of love directs me to love my fellow man enough to live a life uh, that helps him see the glory of the kingdom of God in me. The law of love demands that I live righteous. The law of love demands that I exhibit peace and joy in my life. The law of love demands uh, that I live a life that exemplifies the kingdom of God. That rather than become a hindrance to them, I become a help to them. That I help them get to know God and experience God because of what they see in my life. Love demands that I not allow myself to become the reason why somebody else misses heaven. That's what love requires of me. Love requires that I do not allow myself to become the obstacle, the stumbling block, the reason why somebody else loses out with God. Paul has presented us with a higher principle for life. We tend to think of ourselves first. We tend to think about what we want, what we think, what we are allowed to do. But the law of love gives us a higher principle. It tells us to consider others before we consider ourselves. To think of others before we think of ourselves. The primary dictate in our lives in regard to the exercise of Christian liberty should be how will my actions impact others, not just me. We should see others, even the least among us, as God sees them, as people that Jesus Christ died for. Listen, that hurting, angry individual who may have done you harm, who may have wounded you, is a soul that Jesus Christ died for. That person that may have treated you wrong and despicably is a person that Jesus Christ died for. That person who doesn't look just like you look, doesn't act just like you act, and doesn't fit into your world and isn't of the same ethnicity or the same social economical level and that you might turn your nose at, that person is a soul that Jesus Christ died for. A lot of our problems would be solved if we would just see each other and those around us as someone that Jesus Christ died for if we just realize the value of a one single human life Jesus Christ died for them the world obviously is not governed by the law of love the world obviously doesn't operate under the principle I'm talking about this morning we see it unfolding all around us right now in our culture but the church should be. That's what separates us. That's what distinguishes us. In a society that's torn apart by division and strife, the church should be known as the place where all people are loved equally because all people are recognized as souls that Jesus Christ died for. We can't fix the world but we can't put our own house in order. We can't fix what's outside these walls, but we can take care of ourselves. I want to ask you to stand with me. The message this morning is very simple. It's, it's a message that has been repeated over and over and over again since we left the theological portion of Romans chapter, or the first three quarters of the book of Romans, and we, we embarked into Romans chapter 12. And started moving forward over and over and over again. I've said these same words. I believe I'm, I probably have closed every Sunday morning lesson with the exact same words. Love like you have been loved. Show mercy like you have received mercy. This should be the thing that governs the church of the living God. 
This should be the thing that sets us apart. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Not by your good record keeping or law keeping or righteousness or your acts of goodness and charity and all the things that you do in society and benevolence. That's not how they know that you're my disciple. He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love. By the love that you have for one another. Let love rule the church. That's the higher law. Yes, there's a law of liberty. Yes, there's a law that says I act according to my conscience and, and I may can do some things that my brother says I can't do and, and there may be some differences there on non-moral issues where I can, I can act in the way that I feel is right with my conscience but that, and that is a true spiritual law but the higher law is that I prefer my brother before myself. The higher law is that I love my brother or my sister more than I love my own liberty. That's the law of love. And the law of love demands of us that in a culture that is divided by racism and hatred, that we would let love shine, that we would let love flow through our lives that we would demonstrate what it really means to be a part of the kingdom of God. This morning, if you survey your life and it's anything less than the very high principle that Paul has presented to us this morning, then I would say that today would be a good time to come to a place of repentance and mark a change. I want to love like I've been loved. I want to show mercy the way I've received mercy. They're wrecking our streets, shooting officers of the law, throwing rocks and bricks through windows and cars and for one reason. They want to be loved. the underlying issue for everything that ails our society. Love is the answer. Love like Jesus loved. That's why the principle is so important because Jesus loved them enough that he died for them. They didn't deserve it. But that didn't matter. Listen, you didn't deserve it. But that didn't matter. I didn't deserve it, but he loved me anyway. There's an anointing of the Holy Ghost flowing across this place, and there's a healing that needs to touch our entire nation. And I feel very strongly it's going to be birthed in the house of God, among the people of God. I'm asking you to find a place of prayer on a Sunday morning and turn your heart towards heaven and pray, Lord, let the love of God that same great love whereby you have loved me let that love be manifest in my life let that love be manifest in my heart let that love show up in my actions the things I do the words I say